following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're looking this morning in Exodus chapter 27, uh, titled this message, uh, Sacred Space. Um, let's read, if you want to follow along with me as I read, uh, Exodus 27, verses 1 through 19, about the altar and the court around the tabernacle. Using acacia wood, construct a square, square altar seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. Make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns and the altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar with bronze. Make ash buckets, shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans, all of bronze. Make a bronze grating for it and attach four bronze rings at its four corners. Install the grating halfway down the side of the altar and under the ledge. For carrying the altar, make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. Insert the poles through the rings on the two sides of the altar. The altar must be hollow, made from planks. Build it just as you were shown on the mountain. Then make the courtyard for the tabernacle, enclosed with curtains made of finely woven linen. On the south side, make curtains 150 feet long. They will be held up by 20 posts set securely in 20 bronze bases. Hang the curtains with silver hooks and rings. Make the curtains the same on the north side. 150 feet of curtains held up by 20 posts set securely in bronze bases. Hang the curtains with silver hooks and rings. The curtains on the west end of the courtyard will be 75 feet long, supported by 10 posts set into 10 bases. The east end of the courtyard, the front, will also be 75 feet long. The courtyard entrance will be on the east end, flanked by two curtains. The curtain on the right side will be 22 and a half feet long, supported by three posts set into three bases. The curtain on the left side will also be 22 feet long, supported by three posts set into three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, make a curtain that is 30 feet long. Make it from finely woven linen and decorate it beautifully with embroidery in blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Support it with four posts, each securely set in its own base. All the posts around the courtyard must have silver rings and hooks and bronze bases. So the entire courtyard will be 150 feet long and 75 feet wide with curtain walls seven and a half feet high made from finely woven linen. The bases for the posts will be made of bronze. All the articles used in the rituals of the tabernacle, including all the tent pegs used to support the tabernacle and the courtyard curtains must be made of bronze. All right. You're visiting this morning. You may be regretting it. You're thinking, oh, my goodness, we've come to a church. I picked the wrong Sunday. Uh, we've been going through talking about the tabernacle and the furnishings and a lot of conversation, a lot of details about furnitures and curtains and loops and hooks. Um, so today we come to the, uh, the bronze altar and the courtyard. And uh, the, the, the good thing, the good, the, the good news is that uh, we come to a point where uh, we see kind of the, all the pieces and parts of the tabernacle 
kind of come together into a whole. Uh, all these detailed pieces. Now we see kind of how they all fit together and are arranged. Um, and uh, I've entitled this whole series Blueprint for Worship. And you may be thinking, well, I don't really get it. It mostly just looks like a blueprint for curtains and furniture. How is this really a blueprint for worship? Well, as we kind of pull all these pieces together and see now the outline of the whole uh, courtyard and tabernacle complex, um, we start to get a picture of the purpose and, and meaning of worship. And so we're not going to get too bogged down in the, in the details. Back many hundreds of years ago, the church was fascinated with allegorizing everything. And, and you can actually read, if you go way back, commentators who wrote about things like the silver hooks and loops and tried to connect it to something with Jesus. It took a lot of creativity and imagination. We're not going to do that. Uh, we're going to look at more of the you know, big picture view and focus really on what, what all is happening. Uh, and and I, there's four principles about worship that, that come out as we look at this big picture. Um, and it's significant because it would be easier and tempting to think that, you know, this was, the, this was Jewish, this was the Israelites, this is the Old Testament. Um, it was about their worship. And it really doesn't have anything to do with our worship. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 tells us that uh, this, is, this tabernacle was actually a copy of the true temple in heaven. And so, really, the principles that are laid down here are not just Old Testament principles. It's worship principles. It's about what it means to come before and into God's presence and worship Him, not only for the Israelites, but in the church age, and actually for all eternity. The things that are pictured here are pictures of things that will be true for all eternity as we enter into God's presence and worship Him uh, throughout all eternity. So let's look at these four principles that we can learn about worship. Uh, the first principle is the, that, that we worship by faith and not by sight. Okay, we worship by, by trusting what we cannot see. Uh, so what does, that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, well, to just back up and summarize just a little bit. So what we learned about today as we read is there's this altar. Essentially, it's a really big barbecue grill. Uh, covered in bronze, uh, seven and a half feet wide, so wider than my arm span, seven and a half feet square, about four and a half feet high. Uh, the effect would be is that um, in, in that day, the average person was not six foot two like I am, but probably more like five foot two. So the effect would have been when you walked up to the altar, the meat cooking on it would have been right at eye level. That's kind of the design, that what you see is the sacrifices being burned on the, on the altar, uh, it stood between the tabernacle and the entrance of the courtyard. So it was about half in between. I think if we go forward a slide, I have a, a picture. Okay, yeah. It's actually a, a model. Somebody with way too much time on their hands actually built uh, a living model of the tabernacle and the, and the, um, arc, uh, the, the grill. <laughs> the, the altar. The altar. <laughs> I think it was ark. The altar. Right, and there's the, uh, the the curtains making the courtyard. And you just kind of hold that picture because we'll we'll come back to that. Um, so then there's also the courtyard you see, 150 feet long, uh, 75 feet wide, 
Um, actually, probably bigger, it would be bigger than this room by a, a, a sizable amount. Um, a fairly large space. And, of course, in the car- courtyard towards the back would be the tabernacle itself, and you see the picture of it there. Um, in the tabernacle, of course, was the most holy place uh, in, in, in a back compartment sealed off by a curtain, and in that was the Ark of the Covenant, right? And on that was the, the, the um, atonement cover and the, and the angels. And it was in that spot that the very presence of God was supposed to be residing. So in that tabernacle, if you're an Israelite and you see this, you know that in there, back in that back compartment, the presence of God dwells. Uh, in front of that was the uh, holy place, Still, uh, only the priests could go. Of course, nobody could go in the Holy of Holies. It was off limits to everybody except for once a year, the high priest would go in there. In front of that is the holy place where the priests would go. And during the daytime, those curtains would have been pulled back so people could see in but could not go in. And in there, they would see the table of bread, kind of like our communion table, with 12 loaves of bread laid out. And opposite that would be the lampstand with seven lamps uh, shining light uh, in, in the holy place. Uh, And then there's the courtyard. Um, The curtains were made of the same material and and same design as the temple, which doesn't show it in this picture, but it would have been the same. Uh, And interestingly, the door uh, had embroidered designs with angels and images that would have matched exactly the embroidery in the tabernacle. Now, what I want you to do, I want you to imagine that you're transported into this photo here or back to the, you know, Three, four thousand years ago to um, Moses' time, and you are a worshiper who's going to go worship at the tabernacle. Okay, what would that experience be like for you? So I want you to imagine this. You're, you're in your, your camp. You're camped out in the wilderness. You're in your tent, uh, and this is how it would. This is how the whole experience would be for you. First off, in your camp, it would be these low tents that everybody lived in. But from anywhere in the camp, the one thing that you could see sticking up, as you can see it's quite tall, is the tabernacle itself, 15 feet high. Right? So from, from anywhere in the camp, what you could see was that tabernacle. And you would know that in that tabernacle is dwelling the very presence of God. So you go to worship, and you're going to go to worship, and the tabernacle and the tent and the courtyard was in the very center of their camp. So you would go, and as you drew close to the t- to the tabernacle. Uh, from the outside, what you would see is the curtain that's seven and a half feet tall, about this tall, and it would block everything going on inside the courtyard except for just the tabernacle towering above. So you couldn't see the people inside. You couldn't see what they're doing. It was, it was a, a cutoff space. And likewise, when you got inside, everything in the camp would disappear for you. Right? It would be invisible. Of course, the mountains, the sky you would see, but... Uh, uh, it, it formed a, a space that was exclusive, right? Uh, so you come to the entrance, and as it said, there's this 30-foot entrance with this beautifully uh, embroidered curtain that you would pass through. And as you come in um, and draw close in, what you would see before you is that altar. And then behind the altar, farther towards the back of this courtyard, would have been the tabernacle, um, the tabernacle was certainly the most dominant feature, but the first thing that you see is the ark. Um, I mean, the, the altar. Sorry, not the ark. The altar. Um, and as you stand there, 
uh, the, the tabernacle was intended to be uh, the thing that caught your eye, right? And the reason is because it was the place where God's presence dwelled. And, and you would have the sense that in coming into worship, I am coming into God's presence. Right? What's very interesting about this is as we've studied and learned about the ark and the tabernacle and the holy of holies is that the ark itself and the lid and the angels were made of pure gold. The, the ark itself was made of wood covered with pure gold. The lid was gold. The angels, pure gold. It was an extraordinary box, pure gold, a, a chunk of gold, right? And inside was the commandments and a pot of manna later and uh, Aaron's budding uh, a rod eventually. And as you stood there, how much of that did you see? None of it. None of it, right? You, you did not see the ark. You did not see the cover. You did not see the angels. You did not see God's presence there. And, and the thing is, you never will. Your whole life you know that you will never see this incredibly, incredibly beautiful gold box that's sitting at the back of that tent, right? And so how do you know it's really there? How do you know Moses didn't make this up, right? How do you know there's really a box in there? How do you know God's presence is really in there? Well, it was an act of faith. Right? It was an act of faith that they believed that God was, God's presence was somehow dwelling in the back of that tent. Right? It was an act of faith. And that truly is a starting place of worship for all of us. Right? We worship a God who is, who is hidden from our view. Jesus in the Gospel said, uh, No one has seen God at any time, but the Son reveals Him to you. Uh, that was great for those who lived in Jesus' day, but we don't even see Jesus, literally and physically. We only see what's recorded about him in, in the Gospels. Right? We don't see God. Oh, how I wish I could, right? How many of you feel like your faith would just skyrocket if God, it looked like Jesus would just show up and start passing out the bread and communion and say, hey guys, I'm here. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome. So yeah, look, here's my hands, my nail-scarred hands, my, my side... I want to be like Thomas. You know, I want, I want proof. I want to see it. But that's not how it works for us. Worship is at the first point uh, coming before a God who we cannot see, but we believe his promises. We believe his word, what he's told us about himself in Scripture. And we draw near to this God who we cannot see. And the cool thing is that as we learn, Jesus has has removed the veil. He has torn the, the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And we actually now have access into the very throne of God, Hebrews 4 tells us. But for us, it's still an access that's only by faith. Right? It's something we have to do with a conviction that it's true, regardless of what we, what we see or sometimes what we feel. And the cool thing is, here, here's the thing. As they, would, as they would enter this tabernacle, just coming in there was in itself an act of faith. When, when they came with the heart and attitude that, God, I'm coming to draw near to you. I'm coming to draw close to you. So this morning, show up at church, you come to worship God. Do you have faith that you, by coming together and meeting with other believers in Christ, that we form together 
the temple of God, that Jesus is present among, among us by the mediation of his Holy Spirit, that he is here with us, and that we come for the purpose of drawing near to him in faith. That's the starting place of worship. Second thing, uh, worship involves sacrifice. You can, go to the, you can go to the next slide. Worship involves sacrifice, requires sacrifice. So you come into this compound and you see at the back your ultimate goal is that tabernacle and drawing before the presence of God. But as you, as you start moving towards the, the, the tabernacle, what stands in your way is this huge seven and a half foot square altar, um, bronze altar. And of course, it would have blocked your way partly by its size, uh, you know, four and a half feet high, uh, full of fire, flames, smoking, you know, meat cooking on it and uh, some, some meat actually being burned whole. Uh, the smell of that and the smoke and the fire would have been in itself an impressive sight. Uh, but on top of that was all the activity going on around the altar. And unlike the picture, if it was really a worship service, most of what was happening was happening around the altar. So off to one side near the altar would have been a group of people waiting with their goats and their sheep. Um, I don't know if they were holding them or like on a leash, but they're standing there in line waiting for those animals to be what? <laughs> Killed, Right. And then uh, between them and, and, and kind of closer to the altar is another group of, with a priest and, and some people, and they're actually killing the, the, the sheep or the goat. They're slitting its throat. The people are laying their hands on it. And then they're preparing, the, uh, basically slaughtering the animal to prepare it to lay it on the, the altar. So that's kind of going on over here. And then the altar is there, and there's another group of people around the altar and many priests who were actually putting the animal pieces and arranging them with the fat and other things on the altar to, to burn, in some cases to burn whole, in other cases, I mean to burn as in all of it. In other cases, they're actually literally grilling, grill masters uh, out there barbecuing uh, meat that, that the worshipers would then take off to the side in the courtyard of the temple on their grass mats and eat together a meal. So a lot of activities going on at this altar. And what, uh, um, if, you, I, if you can go to the next slide, uh, just give you an idea of the significance of the altar. This picture shows several altars uh, kind of on the lower left about six, seven, eight o'clock is, is actually the bronze altar of the tabernacle, seven and a half foot square. If you look at the very top of that really shiny gold looking one, is a kind of a scaled model of Solomon's altar. We're talking about some serious barbecue here, right? Um, of course, one of the reasons it was bigger, the idea was that it had to be an altar big enough to cook and, and offer um, to accommodate the sacrifices of a lot of people. And during Solomon's day, of course, Israel had grown, much bigger group of people. And sometimes we know that literally hundreds of thousands of people would show up uh, at one time, like Passover, to offer sacrifices. So it took a, a lot bigger altar to accommodate the number of worshipers. But also the idea is this, and this is kind of the point I want to get to. You cannot get to the, tab the tabernacle or the temple without first encountering the altar. Right? It's intentional. This is not accidental. This is part of the blueprint. And the point of it is this. You cannot get to the... Tabernacle. You cannot get to God's presence 
without first coming to the altar, without encountering the altar. And you must encounter the altar. Because the unseen God you are drawing near to by faith is a holy God. Holy. He cannot abide anything that is sinful. Anything that is not made holy as He is holy. And the only way that that can happen is if you as an unworthy worshiper, as one who is sinful, who is not clean enough, who's not fitting to stand before this holy God, you must offer a sacrifice. There must be a means of atoning for your sin, which requires a substitute who dies in your place. So the worshipers would come with their sheep and their lamb, and they would come in with living creatures, and they would, at the altar, kill them and pour out their blood. And, and uh, if, it's a, if it's a sin or a guilt offering, it was laid on the altar and burned completely in your place. Right? And that's the picture of it. And so um, that's, that's the, the price of admission, if you will, to get back to the tabernacle where you can stand in God's presence. Now, of course, there were other kinds of offerings. They would bring thank offerings. They would bring fellowship offerings, which were the meals that they would eat before the Lord. So those were grilled on the altar and then taken off and they would eat them. Uh, there was the offering of the firstborn and first fruits from among their flocks of harvest and crops. Uh, if you made a vow, you said, God, if you will save me, if you'll help me, I will... I'll bring ten sheep and offer them to you. Those were also given. But, but the point is this, that as you came into this courtyard, every time, every time, even if you weren't making a burnt offering, burnt offerings were being made for sin. And you were reminded, I am not worthy to come before God's presence. I need a substitute. And the price is costly. Something must die as a substitute in my place in order for me to stand before God and not be struck down dead, to stand before him pure and holy and blameless. So, of course, uh, as I said, uh, Hebrews 9 tells us that this is all a picture of something in heaven. It's a copy of something in heaven. Uh, It points to other things. And of course, we know that ultimately what the, what the altar points to is the cross. Right? The cross is the altar on which Jesus sacrificed and laid down his own life as the ultimate substitute for sin. Hebrews 9, 13, and 14 says this. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify your consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was a perfect and final sacrifice for sin. The altar simply pictured what one day Jesus would do for us as he laid down his life on the altar, as he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was slain and he was laid on that altar. His blood was poured out to make atonement for you and I. 
Um, and I think this has relevance for us as worshipers. That Jesus' death on the cross, it, it buys us salvation, right? We know that. We're saved by what Jesus did. But it also is really the starting point of worship. And I just love this picture of, of the Israelite coming into the temple. And every time, every time he came into the tabernacle, every time he came to worship God, every time he came even just to pray, to seek and, and, and pray before God, he came to the altar. Right? The first thing that he came to was the altar. And I really believe that our worship must do the same. Uh, we must begin our, our worship always, always by coming to the cross. Right? I think worship that races into God's presence without first stopping to remember the cross, to understand our unworthiness, and to comprehend the incredible price that was paid for our salvation, our redemption. Right? To, to not, not stop and consider those things. That, that worship is at best shallow and at worst is self-centered and self-serving. Right? And yet, how many, how many churches, how many times do in our own lives do we we worship God. We want to draw into the tabernacle. We want to be close to God's presence, right? We've got things to tell God. We've got things to pray about. And we, we, we don't give a thought to what Jesus did to make it possible for us to enter into God's presence. All worship must start at the cross. Uh, there should be a priority of the cross in our worship. And it's not that we worship the cross, right? Our, our goal is not the cross itself. Our goal is, is the tabernacle, is the presence of God the Father, is living before him and coming into the throne to pray and to worship him. But always, 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 we must remember that we get there only because of what Jesus has done for us. All right, the third thing. Uh, and this also relates to the altar. We worship by bringing offerings. You know, what really is worship? If you were to describe and define what worship is, what would you say it is? Uh, some might say, well, worship is singing praise songs to God, or uh, worship is being thankful, or something like that. And those would be true. Uh, but, but really, what's the most important element of worship? If you were to boil it down to the most important thing that you do that would be categorized as worship, what would it be? Well, I really believe that the, the blueprint of the tabernacle shows us that the most important thing of worship is, uh, or certainly one of the most important things, is that we bring offerings to God. Uh, now, the problem with this is that um, in the, under the new covenant, we just read in, in Hebrews that Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. And so, as Christians, we don't... We don't we don't actually have a barbecue grill out front anymore, except for when we have our pig roast uh, in the fall. We love that day. Um, and, and that kind of is our worship, but in a different way. Um, uh, it's important. But um, we don't really make a, a practice of killing animals and grilling them anymore, of offering them as a sacrifice. So then, because, because Jesus has, has made that obsolete and meaningless. So if we don't bring animals then what, what gifts do we bring as an offering to God? 
Uh, well, certainly we can bring our finance, our offerings can be one thing. Um, um, it's interesting in, in Exodus chapter 23, 15 and Exodus 34, 20, in both places, God tells the Israelites that no one should appear before God empty handed. That's why I think this is one of the most important things in worship. God says, anytime you come before me, anytime you come before that holy place, you come before my presence, don't ever come empty handed. How many times have you gone before God and honestly you came empty handed? What does it mean for us? What, what is the gift that we can bring before God? Does it mean we always have to bring money uh, or offering? What does it mean? Well, uh, there's two significant passages in the New Testament help us with this. The first one is 1 Peter 2.5. And I think I have that. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, you as followers of Christ, you are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Okay, we, we are a holy priesthood who have been raised up, who have been saved and sanctified in order to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer? Well, Peter gives the answer in verse 9. He says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Awesome verse. Awesome verse. What is, what is worship? What is the offering? What is the sacrifice we can bring to God? It is to proclaim his excellencies. And specifically the excellencies of this God who has called us out of darkness and brought us into his kingdom of light. Right? It means declaring the great things God has done. That is worship. That is a gift of, of praise to God. And that's what praise should be. Praise should be declaring the excellencies of Him. Declaring with conviction and faith what God has done for you. Okay. What has God done for you? Has God done anything for you? Who is God to you? Is He a holy, majestic, mighty God who is your rescuer and deliverer? then worship is bringing him praise, declaring those things. A second a passage that we cannot skip over from the New Testament that speaks about our offerings is Romans 12.1. There Paul is writing, and Paul says, I, I appeal, I beg you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, in other words, by the very things that Jesus has done to save you on the cross, by those things to present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, an offering, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? That verse is packed full of stuff. We don't have time to talk about it all. But simply this, the, the greatest gift, the gift God desires more than anything else, what we are to bring before him when we come into his presence is to give him our very self, our very life. Right? To present all that I am as a living sacrifice on the altar. Right? Not to be burned, but to serve, to be poured out. Right? 
And, and our body, it represents everything that we think, everything that we will, our plans, our agendas, our goals, everything that we do, our activity, our behavior, our actions, all of it given as a sacrifice to God. Say, God, my life is yours to use according to your will and your purpose and your plan. That is true worship. And, and, and Paul says that we are able to give our lives, this body, not because it's good, but because it's been made acceptable. It's been made holy by the blood of Jesus. So when you get saved, God sanctifies you. He makes holy your body, your life, so that it's a fitting sacrifice to bring to the altar and present to him. And he says that that is your spiritual worship. Um, the word worship literally can be translated as service or worship. And some translations do both by, as your spiritual service of worship, right? We, we, we worship God by serving him, by giving him our life and using our life, our time, our energy, our resources, everything for his glory. That is worship. See, worship is not just singing a song, right? And, and we do sing songs, but it's not just singing a song, right? Worship is first and must be first and foremost giving our lives to him completely and joyfully because of what Christ has done for us. Because we are so grateful for our salvation that we give ourselves to him. That's the beginning of worship. And when we do that and when we contemplate and think about and comprehend the depths of his love and grace, the price of what Jesus has paid to save us. Our, our hearts should be bursting with song, right? S singing joyfully and praising him because of what he's done for us. That is worship, right? All right, so now I've told you, so don't ever go before God's presence empty-handed. It's dangerous to do so, right? It's dangerous to pretend to worship God when you are holding back the gifts that are due him. Right, when it's just empty ritual or singing songs that don't really mean anything to you. Right, that's not worship. Lastly, last thing. Worship is a sacred space. Um, and by that I mean a place that's set apart. Sacred is, is a word that's related to holy and both words simply mean to set something apart for a special uh, use, specifically for God's use, God's purpose. Um, today we talk about the courtyard, this tent, that, this, these curtains that fenced off this space. And by doing that, uh, they were creating a space that was devoted exclusively for worship. Now, we live in a day when we like to make good use of our money, and I don't think that's all bad. And many churches now, they don't build sanctuaries, which, by the way, sanctuary is, is a similar word to sacred. It's that same word, to set apart. And so back when I was a kid, our church had a sanctuary. And the sanctuary was set apart. And I remember one day when I was about four years old, running, as a little four-year-old does, screaming down the aisle, ah, you know, having fun, not during church, <laughs> after church, um, and, and one of the elders, I think this guy was about 900 years old, and um, came sternly, grabbed me. He said, don't you ever run in church. This is the sanctuary. It's holy. 
<laughs> so I don't know what that means, but you just freaked me out, dude. And I'm sure I'm never going to run in church again, right? Well, I don't know if his theology was all on target or everything, but, you know, it was, to him it was a sacred space. And nowadays, you know, churches have multi-use, multi-use rooms, right, where you, you have church and then you cut all the chairs out and you have a one or you have soccer camp or whatever, you know. Um, this courtyard was not, it was not a multi-use space. Okay, they weren't clearing, after worship, they weren't clearing out for soccer. Right? It was a perfect soccer field, right, with a fence. Uh, no, it was exclusive for one purpose alone, and that was to worship God. And when they came into that tent, God, God designed it so the curtains were seven and a half feet high. It meant when you entered in, everything else disappeared. Right? You didn't see your tent anymore. You didn't see your flock. Uh, you weren't worrying about the dishes you didn't get washed. You were to not think about the dirty clothes waiting to be scrubbed or the sheep needing to be sheared or the bills that needed to be paid or things that needed to be fixed. All of that was to, to go away. And this was to be a place... Uh, devoted just to God, to worshiping Him. And, and so, so this is a picture, and this is both, if you get the picture of inside and outside the, the, the space. Outside, also everything going on inside disappeared except for what? The tabernacle, right? And there's a sense of which everywhere, every part of their daily life, scrubbing their clothes, shearing their sheep, paying their bills, all of that was done in God's presence because there was a tabernacle. Wherever you went, there was a tabernacle. God was with you. And it's not saying that God's not part of everyday life. He's not, not interested in your cooking your breakfast or washing your clothes or doing everyday routines of life. He was part of that. But it meant that when you came to worship God, you put all that behind and there was to be an exclusive focus on God alone. Everything else gets shut out. It means that we need a place. It means for us, and, and we don't, you know, we don't always call this a sanctuary. And certainly, in our own private life, we should have, we should worship God daily. And what it means is, when in our worship, we need a place free of distractions from everyday life. And in your daily routine and your daily schedule. Are you carving out sacred space that's devoted to God alone? Life is incredibly distracting, right? And now if life isn't distracting enough, we've invented infinite ways to make it even more distracting with computers and smartphones, right? I love my phone. It's a great tool. But instead of calling it a smartphone, what they should call it really is a devilish device of, of infinite distraction, because that's what it is for me, right? Uh, you got messages going up, you got Facebook beeps, you got Twitter beeps, you got phone calls, you got texts, you got video chats, you got music, you got video games, you got reminders, you got alerts, on and on and on, right? And uh, honestly, how many times do you sit down to pray, to worship, to have your quiet time, and you can't go two minutes without checking your phone, right? Anybody there? Don't raise your hands, <laughs> Because it's true of all of you. If you have the phone, I know it's true, right? If, we don't, if we're not careful, if we don't set up sacred boundaries, our electronics and our gadgets will intrude on that. 
Turn off your phone. Put it on silent. Walk it in another room. I don't know. Um, set up sacred spaces. Because um, if you don't, right, you will never give God what He seeks, which is devoted attention. Right? They were not to be distracted. They were to come into God's presence and they were to focus on worshiping Him. Right? Secondly, it means uh, having a place of undivided attention, which is a little different than distractions. Because undivided attention comes from an undivided heart. And many things can distract us from outside, but an even greater problem is the, the tendency of our heart to divide its loves and loyalties. Because if we are honest, is God always the recipient of our wholehearted love and affection and devotion? Or are we tempted to love other things? Are we pulled off in many different directions um, because of other loves? The reason the phone has so much power is because we love some of those things. And it's easy to put those things right up there with God or above God. Um, It needed to be a place of undivided attention where their hearts were fully focused on God. Where he was receiving 100% of their love and affection and praise and worship in God alone. Finally, this kind of uh, space is both private and corporate. It's both individual and public, right? Uh, it's private because it takes personal faith in God to, to, to come before him, right? Only you can decide to trust God and believe that he's there and he's presence is near us and we can draw near to it. It's a private thing. Nobody can do that for you. And certainly on your own day by day, I hope you are having times of personal worship where you daily are drawing into God's presence and praying and in his word and drawing near to him to worship him. To lay down your life daily. God, I know I I laid it down yesterday, but it only lasted for 15 minutes and I took it back. I'm sorry. Confess. But today, I'm giving it back to you. Okay, it's yours again. Starting there, right? Daily, we should be doing that. But it's also corporate. And I love the picture of this huge courtyard. It was big enough to accommodate a lot of people. And they would come and they would offer their offerings and then they would take the food that was cooked and they would go off on the side of the tabernacle somewhere near and in God's presence. They would celebrate God's goodness together with a meal. Just like we're going to do today with communion. Uh, sadly, you know, the logistics of it all would be so much cooler if we could have like an all-out pita fest, right? With lots of bread and hummus and, and chicken or something. I don't know. We get, we get us a crumb, but it's, right, it's, a, it's a picture of this fellowship meal together celebrating God's love and goodness. That's what they did. And they did it corporately. There's something incredibly powerful when we come together for the purpose of worshiping God, and we join with others and we sing, and I love that our church sings loud, and you get a sense that, man, I'm a part of God's church. I'm a part of a community that's worshiping God together. Romans 15, 5 and 6 puts it this way. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another 
in accord with Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do when we come on Sundays, right? We come not to get something. Hopefully you get something. Hopefully you learn something. Hopefully you're encouraged. But our purpose is not to get. It's to join together, to join with one voice, to glorify God and praise Him together. <clears throat> Let me put this all together with, uh, but just by reading uh, Psalm 27, verses 3 through 6. I think we had that as well. Psalm 27, 3 through 6, I hope. Um, where David really puts together all these pieces of worship into one psalm. He says this, then, Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. What is that? That's faith. He says, I come before this God with faith in the invisible God that he is going to take care of me, that his presence with me means it's going to be all right. right? I'm confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing that I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. In other words, that's, that's words that mean to draw into God's presence. Right, God's house for David was the, temp, was the tabernacle, tabernacle, actually. The temple had not been built yet. And so I want to live near that tabernacle where I am right in the presence of God. I can't think of a better place to spend every day of my life than near to the presence of God. Delighting in the Lord's perfections. BSV translate that, translates that more literally, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What did it mean to gaze upon the beauty of an invisible God? Right? When David went to the tabernacle, could he see God? He couldn't see God. He was just as invisible to, the Isra- to David as he was the Israelites as he is to us. What was he gazing on that was so beautiful? Well, he was contemplating the wonders of what God had done to save him. Right? We would say contemplating the beauties and wonders of the cross the glories of what Jesus has done for us. And meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices. What is that? That's the offering of bringing offerings of thanksgiving to God. I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. That's God's blueprint for worship that he gives in the picture of the tabernacle. And it's, it's the picture for worship for us today. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.